Bibles. But as you turn there, I have a question for you. Have you ever felt like you are a wanderer? Have you ever felt like maybe you weren't actually lost, but maybe figuratively you were aimless, or you were lacking satisfaction, and you were yearning for something in your life? Or maybe have you ever been a rebel? Or are you a rebel? Are you one of those people that every single opportunity that you have to usurp authority, you take the chance to be able to do so? Some of your kids might be that, but I won't say their names now. But have you ever maybe been a, a fool? Not saying that you are a fool, but maybe have you ever acted like a fool? Either, either having wisdom or not, have you chosen to be able to embrace folly instead of wisdom? And what about being helpless? Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you were completely and utterly helpless? If you felt like you connected to any one of those groups of people, I have good news for you. The psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning should be able to connect to you because we're going to see that each and every single one of these groups of people, God works in the midst of their distress and he delivers them from it. And as we do that, we're going to be looking at the entirety of Psalm 107, which brings us to the title of our sermon this morning, The Testimony of the Lord's Loving Redemption. The Testimony of the Lord's Loving Redemption, because each and every single one of these groups of people from all their different backgrounds is able to testify, to be able to speak about God's goodness, to redeem them in the midst of where they're at. But before we do that, I invite you to be able to pray with me and for me as we go into God's word. Lord Jesus, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for the many different things that you have given us. God, we pray that you would bless us as we dive into your word and that you would allow us to be able to glorify you and all of us would be edified by it. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. So if you haven't found it yet, good luck. Uh, Psalm 107 is where we're going to be at this morning. Um, And we're going to be looking first off in verse 1. It says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. For some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And he led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Yet some sat in darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed down their hearts with hard labor, and they fell down with none to help. Yet then they cried to the Lord in the midst of their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness under the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Yet some were fools in their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Yet then they too cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed him and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Yet some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on great waters. 
and they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heavens, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight, and they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. They too cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns the rivers into a desert and springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. Yet he also turns a desert into pools of water and a parched land into springs of water. There he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let his livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low, through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction, and he makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him or her attend to these things. Attend, let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Now, Psalms is not the book of Matthew. So again, there's a little bit of a different context. And I don't know about you when you were growing up in Sunday school, if you can remember what it was like to be able to be in children's church downstairs. But when I was little, whenever I thought of Psalms, I thought that David, you know, the great, you know, uh, character in the Old Testament, I thought that he wrote all of them. I thought that every single one of them was written by David, in my ignorance, and I just thought that he wrote all of them. And later on, I realized that he wrote a majority of them, but not quite all of them. And this is the one, one of the ones that he didn't write. And also, the time period of the Psalms extends not just for his time period, but also later on to the exile and possibly even to the post-exilic time. So even maybe similar to the time of Nehemiah and some of the people returning, there was a compilation of the book of Psalms. And this psalm that we're looking at, Psalm 107, is the very first of book five. It's the beginning of book five. There's five different sections in the book of Psalms. And it's the one that opens it up. And if you were trying to think, okay, well, what time period is this in? If you look at the very end of Psalm 106, it says this. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us in from among the nations, hmm. that we might give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. What does that sound like? Sounds like a plea to be able to return from exile. And then look at the opening of our psalm. It says in verse 3 that he has gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. So it seems like that this psalm is talking about the return of people, of the people of God to the land of Israel, or at least foreshadowing that. Some of it's around that time period or looking forward in anticipation of that time period. And yet as uh, the people of God are in exile, and we've been in Nehemiah and in that time period, a lot of times... I like to ask the question, why? We go through, have you ever been reading through a story and then you get maybe sidetracked or daydreamed and all of a sudden in the midst of the story you're like, why, why is this happening again? You ever been there? Maybe it's just me. But sometimes you ask that. And when I was thinking about the reason that the people of God were in exile, a lot of times we're like, oh, well, they were kind of bad and they weren't really perfect, you know, like all of us are. But why were they in exile? And if we look back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of Scripture, and we looked in Exodus chapter 19, after the people of Israel had heard the words of God, they entered into a covenant with God. If you'd like to be able to take notes, write down Exodus 19.8. It says this, And all the people answered together, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, 
and Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. In that verse, they are saying that we are vowing to enter into a covenant, a commitment to be able to hold fast, that you will be our God and we will be your people. So they're entering into a covenant, an agreement. And when you enter into an agreement, you're saying that both sides are looking to be able to be faithful to each other. They vowed that they will be faithful to God. And yet, as you look again through maybe the stories that you heard in Sunday school, Israel was not completely faithful, and they started to be able to chase out after other gods and be able to replace him with anything and everything and anyone to be able to substitute him the best for anything that was good or less than that in their lives. And at the end of the historical section, in the end of 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 through 17, say this, answering that why. Why did the people of God go into exile? Why was that the case? It says this, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because, why? He had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people and there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men, on virgin or maiden or old men or aged. And he gave them all into his hand, into the king of Babylon. And it seems very likely that this psalm is referring to that time period, not in going out into exile, but either in anticipation or in reflection of them coming back into the land. And I share that with you because there's a reason behind the things of God, if we take the time to be able to enter into that. And as we look forward, we're going to be looking at those four different groups of people. So in the beginning, I talked about different groups of people. I talked about wanderers, I talked about rebels, I talked about fools, and I talked about those who are helpless. And we've all felt like that at different times. And this psalm is going to basically compare the exile in Babylon that the people of Israel had being similar to those four different types of people and how God rescues them in different ways. And that brings us to our first point this morning, the redemption of wanderers, the redemption of wanderers. If you're somebody who likes to be able to travel or you're somebody who's aimless or you're somebody who maybe is pointless, you might be able to relate to a point of this. And it says this in verse 4, it says this, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. The people of Israel, they had been taken into exile by Babylon in 586 B.C., and they were taken out there, and they were, at that time, as you think about them, they were making a journey that would have taken hundreds of miles and would have taken several months to be able to cross. And no doubt, they weren't wandering aimlessly. They were heading back to Babylon, but as they got to Babylon, it was kind of like they were in exile because they were away from their home. No doubt, they were thinking of how their forefathers in the desert of Sinai had rebelled against God, and they wandered for 40 years. And in Babylon, they had to be in, in uh, exile for 70 years because of their sins. And yet he's comparing this to basically a group of people wandering away from their homes. And yet, I want to be able to compare this to us today. Have you ever been in a spot where you have moved jobs, or schools, or maybe even homes? In that moment where you change from that place that was your home or your location of your job, and you go to a new place, there's a level of uncertainty, of insecurity. It's new, it's not tested. It's unfamiliar. And as we get into those situations, a lot of times we're not really comfortable in those areas. And sometimes it's basically saying that we're very similar to maybe people who are wandering, like in this passage, who are not sure about this new place. But also let's compare it to other people, perhaps. 
Perhaps we are wanderers not so much in a sense of a physical location or a job or a school, but have you ever been in a spot where you are longing for something or you're seeking for something? You're wandering, but you're not exactly sure. When you think of a wanderer, a lot of times you think of somebody who is constantly moving, but their direction is uncertain. They're not sure where they're going or where they want to go. And yet, even in the midst of this wandering, verse 6, they cry out to God, and look what he does. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And he led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. In verse 9, he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Notice that in the midst of their distress, God is the one to be able to give them their direction. A lot of times in the Old Testament, when it was in Deuteronomy or some of the other books of the law, when they talked about God's law, they would say, you need to live according to this law. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Compare that to us today. Maybe when we think about following after God, we talk about the straight and narrow path that Matthew 7 talks about. And a lot of times we're distracted by the things of this life, right? And we'll turn aside, we'll wander off course from following God, and we'll turn aside to things either good or evil, None of them are the best because none of them are God. It's similar to us in that regard. And yet even in the midst of this situation where the people of Israel are lost in exile and they are away from God in Babylon, they cry out to God and he delivers them. And he gives them a straight way, a path to be able to return to Israel. And he brings them back. And not only that, but he also satisfies them. When I mentioned wanderers earlier, if you're thinking about people who wander from one thing to another thing, a lot of times we seek different things in life, and I don't know what you're seeking in life. You might be seeking uh, excitement, you might be seeking purpose, you might be seeking a lot of different things in life. Yet if we don't make God our satisfaction, we'll usually come up empty. And yet notice that these people in the midst of their distress, when they realize that the things that they've been seeking have been wandering away from God, and they cry out to God saying, you are the one that they want, notice that they are satisfied in him. Their satisfaction and their longing is satisfied, and they no longer have to wander seeking other things. And it's interesting because even in the midst of this situation, if you go back to the Old Testament law and you think about Israel, God knows all things. He knows that they're eventually going to rebel against him. And built into God's law, he put in place guidelines for in the midst of rebellion, in the midst of exile, when the people of God were to rebel against him, what were they were supposed to do in that situation? And how they were supposed to be able to come back to God? Because God knows that we're all broken people. That's true for Israel back then and true for every single one of us here today. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 4. And when these things come upon you, both the blessing and the curse from the law, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind, listen to this, among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, God anticipating the exile coming, and you return to the Lord your God with your children and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all of your heart and with all of your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all of the places where the Lord your God has scattered you. In Deuteronomy, it was giving guidelines for when you are far away from God, when you have been scattered out into exile and you're far away from your homeland and you're far away from Jerusalem, your home city. In the midst of that, if you turn back to God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and you repent of your sins, it outlines that he will bring them back to the land of promise. Their home and their wandering will end. 
And a, lot of, and a lot of times we think about this and we think, oh man, that's in Old Testament, but it's very true to us. True to us if we are wanderers, searching for things in life. And when we come to God and we come to God with all of our heart and with all of our soul, not seeking things, not seeking benefits from church or, or a feel-good feeling that we can get after attending church or reading the Bible, but when we genuinely come to God and we cry out to him in the midst of our distress and we come to him with all of our heart but all of our soul, with all of our being, and we say, God, we want to turn back to you, and we cry out to him, he too will be able to deliver us just like he was able to for Israel. And yet, what's interesting is a lot of times in Scripture, it will repeat things because we're forgetful people. You can ask the kids, I forget things all the time, all the time, at youth group all the time, and different things. I forget things a lot of the time. And yet, this psalm repeats that idea of the steadfast love of the Lord. There's a crisis, there's a difficulty, and then God's people are delivered. And that's where there's another group of people that is redeemed. And that's major point number two, the redemption of rebels. The redemption of rebels. Verses 10 and 11 say this. Some sat in darkness under the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Why? Because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed down their hearts with hard labor and they fell down with none to help. Sometimes we as people, we're rebels. All of us are broken people and we're not perfect and we all sin. That means that we are all pre-programmed to be able to rebel against God at some level of our lives. You don't have to teach children to be able to disobey. They learn that by themselves. You have to teach them to obey, right? Wouldn't that be weird if you're like, hey, we're going to teach you how to disobey. If kids were perfect, that would be great. But the truth is the same thing that's true for little people is true for big people. We're all broken people and we have an innate desire to be able to rebel against God. And that's one, what the psalmist is doing. He's painting a picture of, of the people of Israel being imprisoned. They're basically saying that all of you guys being in exile away from God is similar to people being imprisoned. Not just in prison, locked up, but in the midst of being locked up, having shackles and iron, irons on your hands so you cannot escape. And the reason for this is because Israel had rebelled against God. Remember that why question. When we look at Scripture and we say, this is the what, this is what is happening. But if we ask why, why is this happening? It says it is because they had rebelled against the words of God. And that's because a lot of times as people, we like to be able to learn things the hard way. How many of you, when you were a kid, heard your parents tell you, don't put your hand on the stove? Most of us did. But what did most of us do? Well, maybe you guys didn't, but I did. When I was a kid, I was a little broken sinner. I don't know about all of you guys. But I, when I heard from my parents, don't put your hand on the stove, I was like, well, that's what they said. I'm going to try it out anyways. I remember not being like a smart kid. Smart kids watch up and they like go like this to see if it's hot. But I was like a little kid. I was like a little arrogant kid. And I walk up, stick my thumb right on it. I don't know why I chose my thumb. I just put it right there on the stove. And I hesitated for a second. In that moment of hesita hesitation, I had a moment of pride because I was like, you know what? This ain't that bad. It's not burning. That moment passed. And because the griddle was on, and I pulled my hand off and yelled, "Ow!" and it's red, and it's burnt. So my parents are like, yeah, we told you so. But sometimes we like to learn things the hard way. Even if we know in our head that it's most likely going to be hot, that it's most likely that we're going to get burnt, we still have that desire to be able to rebel and to be able to do things our own way. And Israel was in a similar spot. They had God's law. They knew what they were supposed to do. They knew what they were supposed to do in terms of following after God. And yet they decided to be able to do things their own way and to learn disobedience the hard way. And yet, 
The truth of this is that when we deal with our sin, we cannot free ourselves. Remember the word picture that's being described in this passage? It's describing irons on your hands. We have some pretty strong men and strong women in this church that I've seen on mission trips and stuff, but I don't know if any of them, if we were to clap them in irons, would be able to just burst them apart by their own strength. If they did, that would be pretty impressive. But most of us can't do that by our own ability. And what's also true that we can't do by our own ability is that we cannot rid ourselves of our sin. We cannot liberate ourselves from our sin. We are in bondage our sin. Think about the iron shackles and the oppression in the prison that they're in and think of that parallel to our sin. All of us are broken people, just like Israel was. And as we're broken people, we have irons on our hands. And by our own strength, a lot of times you and I, we might say, I want to try to be able to get rid of this by my own strength. So we try to twist and we try to pull and we try to be able to break those shackles apart. But just like a strong man trying to be able to break out of irons by himself, he might be able to, but most likely he won't. And that's where in the midst of this situation, in the midst of that hopelessness of being in a dungeon, in the midst of irons and being in bondage, what did they do in the midst of that? Verse 13, that same same theme comes out. They cried out to the Lord in the midst of their trouble. And he is the one to deliver them from their distress. Notice that they're in distress, but they are not the ones to be able to liberate themselves by, from their own distress. When they learned the hard way what disobedience was, when they learned the hard way what sin and its consequences brought, they had to be able to turn to someone greater than themselves for a solution that they could not supply. Because God was the only one that can break their shackles. In Isaiah chapter 44, it says this, I, God speaking, have blotted out your transgressions to Israel like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me. Why? For I have redeemed you. For I have redeemed you. Redemption doesn't mean that you are in yourself perfect. It means that you are either insufficient or broken or evil and God was able to redeem you and bring you back to restore you. That's what redemption is. And also in Isaiah, very next chapter, it says this, I will go before you and level the exalted places, but listen to this, I will break into pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. That same idea of God is the only one that can break off our shackles is illustrated in Isaiah chapter 45, and it also rings true to the oppression of these people in this word picture of people being an oppression. So when we think about ourselves, and we think about our sin and how we're in bondage to our own sins, we can still pull, we can still to free ourselves, but no matter how hard we pull, no matter how much we want to be able to perfect ourselves, we'll never be able to be truly free of sin. But when God comes into the picture and we say, God, I can't break these shackles apart, and we cry out to him in our distress, in our problems, and say, Lord, I cannot overcome this. Will you help me? God is the one who's able to break those bonds apart and to be able to free us and to set us free. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus in our life. There might be shackles in your life that you are trying to break right now. This isn't just true for somebody who is coming to know Jesus and is somebody that isn't a Christian, but us too for Christians nowadays. After we've come to Christ, do we try to be able to put those shackles back on? Then when we're entangled, do we try to be able to free ourselves by our own ability? Or do we turn back to the one who broke our shackles 
and made it so that we can never be imprisoned again. What's true for the wanderer and for the rebel is still true for us today. Are we turning to God in the midst of our problems, or are we turning to ourselves and our own abilities? Because there are some problems that we cannot overcome, but we have a God that is almighty and is able to free us. And yet, if you're like me, sometimes we do the foolish thing, and we try to free ourselves by our own ability. We try to be able to do something by our own power. And that brings us to our third point today. Third point is this, the redemption of the afflicted fools. The redemption of the afflicted fools. We're all foolish people sometimes. That doesn't mean we're dumb. Some of us are very wise, and yet sometimes we choose folly over wisdom. Solomon, he was the wisest man to be able to ever live, and yet he still chose foolishness and folly in certain manners of his life. But look what it says in verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Now, before we get to the redemption part, let's look at that for a, section, for a second. When you are either a teenager growing up, or maybe you have kids today, have you ever heard the phrase, think before you act? Or have you ever told your kids that, think before you act? It's a common thing that we tell people. And a lot of times, us as people, we think not about the consequences that are to come, but the immediate circumstances that we're in. That's why a lot of times when we're young people, or even when we're not young people, we make foolish choices because instead of thinking about the long-term effects, we think about the short-term gain, especially when it comes to our sin. That's why sin is enticing. It promises short-term gain, but eternal guilt and shame and punishment. And that's one of the things that fools do. We give in to sin at different points in our life. And yet, in the midst of their sinful ways, they, because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. That means that they had physical things going on. They had physical ailments. They had some kind of illness going on. There was some kind of physical affliction going on when they sinned. Have you ever felt that when you sin? Have you ever been in a point where you feel a physical difference in your life because of the way that you have rebelled against God? And in this passage, it goes so far to be able to say they loathe any kind of food. They wouldn't eat. They wouldn't be able to go on. There's times where maybe you deal with sin in your life, and until that sin is resolved and you are able to bring that before God and confess that, until that is resolved, you're not able to do anything. And that's what this is saying about these people. And there are times that they are so grieved that they cannot eat, they cannot do anything. And yet in the midst of our sin, in the midst when we are foolish, how do you respond? How do you respond? Not your friend, not your family, but how do you respond in the midst of our foolishness? Because usually we can fall off the horse on one of two ways. Either we will be self-righteous and legalistic and we will pummel ourselves and try to be able to beat ourselves up to a point where we take the severity of sin and we try to be able to take it to the extreme and we try to be able to expect ourselves to be perfect. And we throw a pity party for ourselves sometimes because we pummel ourselves down so much. The opposite side of that to the other extreme is that we are too light on sin. We don't take sin seriously. We don't think about the fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross to be able to die for our sins. And we think of it as a light thing, a minor offense in the eyes of God. And yet, as we deal with sin in our lives, Scripture says that we need to be able to respond in a certain way. We do need to be able to respond, but this is what 2 Corinthians 7.10 says. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
when we are rebuked by God's word and we have a response from God's word, it's supposed to be able to move us to repentance, not to be able to move towards self-guilt and self-condemnation. Remember the words of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the beginning of 1 John 2 says, I am writing these things to you, children, so that you will not sin. But if any one of you does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So in the midst of our sin, when we turn to God's word, yes, we will be rebuked, but as we turn to God, that rebuke will push us towards repentance and push us back towards God rather than pushing self-guilt on ourselves so that we isolate and move further away from God. And that's what these people do in verse 19. It says, in the midst of this, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and he delivered them from their, distru- from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. They cried out to, the midst, they cried out to God in the midst of their suffering. When we are in the midst of distress, how do we respond? Do we respond in a way that we go to God's word and it pushes us towards repentance? Or do we fall off course in being too legalistic and self-condemning ourselves? Or are we too light on ourselves? We're supposed to be able to run back to God. Let's do that, church. Let's do that as we seek to be able to run back to God when we have challenges in our life. And even... That goes back to what God said in Deuteronomy. We're supposed to be able to return to God, not just in words, not just in lip service saying, hey, God, I'm back, but to be able to return humbly and to be able to say, I'm here with all my heart and with all my soul, as Deuteronomy commanded. And yet, he also says that he sends out his word and he healed them. I remember when I was in high school, and there was a time when I was just really, really down and really depressed, and my youth pastor came up to me, and he shared a word with me from Scripture. He didn't just try to cheer me up, but he shared a word with me from the book of Ephesians. And he talked about how the glorious inheritance of Christ is the, is the saints and how Christ views us as valuable and cares about us. And I remember in the midst of that moment, hearing that word spoken into my life, and that was better than any encouragement or any hug could be, even those things, those things are great. But that was a word that God sent into my life, and it was an encouragement. It was healing. It was something that was a blessing to me because it was from God's word. And yet so oftentimes in our lives, instead of going to God's word, when we have distress and we have trouble in our life, we try to be able to self-medicate through other means. And when we do that, we take ourselves away from the thing that's best, from God's word. And in Ephesians, it says this, when it talks about Christ and the word and his church, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. God cleanses us. He cleanses us. He cleans us by his word. That's why when we look to be able to challenge people to read through scripture in a year and to be able to preach from God's word and to be able to study it in small groups with the Scots and the men and women Sunday school and all throughout, we look to be able to go back to the word because it's through God's word that he sanctifies us, that he cleanses us, that he washes us of our iniquities and he starts to be able to push us forward towards Christ. We're forgiven because of the blood of Jesus but he starts to clean us through his word. Are we looking at God's word with that value? Are we looking at God's word with that value, or are we looking at it with an idea that it's routine, that it's something that we should read because it's what good Christians do? But when you do get into God's word, it does bring healing, it does bring encouragement. 
And I, and I would encourage you, if you're in a spot right now where you know that you should read God's word, but you don't have a heart to be able to do so, start to pray that God would give you a heart for that. Sean a lot of times mentions that it's cheating when we pray, pray but it's okay. It's cheating to be able to benefit ourselves in that we're cheating by using something outside of our power to be able to seek God. And there's times in my life where I've known that I've needed to have a hunger for God and a hunger for his word. And I've started to pray, Lord, would you give me a hunger for your word? Would you give me an innate desire to be able to seek you because right now I just don't have that? And slowly over time, he started to do that. He slowly started to be able to give me a hunger for his word and a desire to be able to do that. And the more I got in God's word, the more I was satisfied in it, the more I was encouraged by it, the more I saw changes in my life. And even though in the midst of it, at the very beginning, I did not feel like pursuing it because I prayed for it, God was able to do that. And that's what I would encourage for all of us. In those moments where you say, I know that I need to be able to run and seek Jesus, but I don't feel like it in the moment, pray that God would give you a heart to be able to seek him. And slowly over time, if we're faithful to pray that, we'll see that God begins to change our heart to be able to love him more and more. And you might feel, as you go through this perhaps, as we're comparing these different sections, that maybe you're too far gone, or that you've done something too unforgivable, or something that God is not willing to put up with. You look at each one of these sections. When they cry out to God, what does he do? He responds. He delivers them from their distress. Because the problems that are above our heads are not above God's. The problems that are outside of our control are not outside of God's control. And he's able to redeem us and to be able to help us and to deliver us from any kind of distress. And yet, when I was a young man in college, I remember reading this psalm and thinking, these are all really good points. But it didn't really come alive until I read this next section. That brings us to our fourth point this morning. The redemption of the helpless mariners. Not the baseball team, but the redemption of the helpless mariners. Look with me at verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on great waters. And they saw the deeds of the Lord for his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And they mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. And their courage melted away in their evil plight, and they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Some translations say at the end of their seamanship, meaning that their ability to be able to steer themselves through the tumultuous waters was exhausted, and they were no longer able to gather their way through the storm in a way that they would be able to overcome it. They were helpless. And you might not be somebody who was a mariner, but when I was a young man in college, I remember being in a spot of my life where I felt helpless. I felt not literally like the waves of the sea were coming against me, but I felt figuratively that there were just mountains of water and life was throwing me back and forth and I didn't know what was going on. And there's moments where you do feel like you have a little bit of control, but I remember in this brief moment in my life, I remember that it was just out of control. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what my aim was. I didn't know how I was supposed to be able to continue. It was just a lot of things that were really challenging. And I remember looking just in the, in the scriptures and seeking for different situations that were similar to mariners or sailors on the waters. And the scripture doesn't have a ton of them because the Hebrews were not people who were seafaring mostly. You get fishermen, you get a couple people under Solomon that go and they go on trade routes, but overall they're not seafaring peoples. A lot of people say that the Jews, they would associate the sea with chaos or with evil because it was something that they were unfamiliar with. It was untested. And yet in the midst of this verse, I remember coming to that and realizing that, you know what, this is very similar to a lot of people and myself in this moment. That we sometimes feel helpless in the midst of the challenges of life. 
Sometimes we feel like we have exhausted our own abilities and our skills to weather life. And that might not mean that you're a sailor today, but that might mean that in the midst of your current context, your ability and your own skill to be able to navigate through life and to overcome your problems have been, become exhausted. And you're not able to overcome them by your own strength anymore. And you feel like you've lost your anchor and your ship may be just being tossed back and forth by the waves of the sea. You ever been in a spot like that? It's not fun. And yet, even in the midst of that, even in the midst of that, I remember reading this verse and I remember looking through the rest of this scripture and I remember realizing that, you know what, in the midst of this moment in my life, I've looked through different points in my life and I felt like at times I've been a fool, at times I've been a rebel, at times I've been aimless and there's times where I have been helpless. And in that moment, I was helpless. And in that moment, God pushed me to be able to run back to himself and to cry out to him for deliverance because I wasn't able to be able to, be able to fix situations by myself, by my own strength. And I remember that as I started to come to God and pray, Lord, would you be able to help me? And I wasn't exactly sure what that meant, but he started to be able to get me plugging into a, a godly church and a small group and a group of people that pushed me to study God's word and to be able to build in me godly community. And it was an encouragement to me, and it was basically like the solution that he gave to the mariners in this section, where it said, and they cried out to the Lord in their, in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be sea, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of man. A lot of times, again, we're not people who are sailors, but there's going to be storms that happen in our lives. There's going to be challenges. And as we come into situations like that, do we run to God in our hour of need? when our skills are exhausted, when our own intellect is no longer able to solve our problems, when our maybe skills in any number of things are exhausted, do we run to God, do we cry out to him? Or again, do we try to be able to learn things the hard way and try to be able to do things by our own ability and our own skill? And as we look at that and as we think about that, sometimes the storms of the sea are things that we need to be able to push us towards Christ. Sometimes God will allow us to be able to go through storms or seasons of difficulty or allow us to feel helpless in a moment to be able to get our attention so that we might be able to see that we're not as great as we think we are and that we need his help to be able to seek him and to grow and to be a better man or woman. And it was storms, if you look through scripture, think of Jonah, took a storm to be able to get his attention, to be able to make him see that he was in the midst of a situation where he was rebelling against God. And it put the fear of God in him so that he was reluctant still, but able to go back to the people that he was called to. The writer of the song Amazing Grace, John Newton, he, when he was a young man, he was a man who was a sailor for many, many years, and yet it was a storm at sea that put the, the fear of God in him and later led him to become a minister of the gospel in England. And later on, one of the men named John Wesley, who was somebody who was used of God in mighty ways when he was out a storm at sea and he was no longer a Christian, even though he was supposed to be a missionary in America in the colonies, in the midst of that, he saw a group of Moravian missionaries huddled together, praying and having no fear of God in the midst of the storm. And he remembers comparing himself to that group of people and saying, there's a difference between me and them, and realizing that they had something that he didn't. And that was peace of God in the midst of, of the difficult circumstances because they were crying out to God in the midst of their distress, and he was trying to weather the storm by his own seamanship. You might, I don't know what kind of situation you're at in life. You might be in a situation where things are peachy keen and great, and I'm glad for that. 
God bless you and allow that to be able to continue to be the case. But seek God in the midst of those circumstances. Seek God when things are well and seek him when things are ill. Whenever the circumstance, cry out to God and rely on him no matter the circumstance because sometimes God is going to allow us to be able to go through a storm to be able to see our need for him. But how much better if we see our need for God when things are well, when things are prospering, when we have things going well in our life that we're able to seek out after him. And yet, at the end of this verse, or at the end of this stanza, it says, let him extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. At the end of it, we should be giving back praise to God. When Peter walked out on the water in the midst of a storm in the Gospels, and he started to sink and he cried out, God save me, it was clear who saved him. It wasn't his own ability. And he gave glory to God for that. And you see that God is able to redeem and deliver people from each one of these situations. That means that there's not a specific group of people where God's going to look at them and say, hey, guess what? I don't really deal with people who are rebellious. Sorry, come again next millennia. I'm going to be gracious then. Or you don't see God looking at people who don't have their life together and figure it out and saying, sorry, I'm not going to be able to redeem you. Instead, you see each one of these different groups of people, those who are aimless and those who are wanderers, those who are rebels in the midst of their situations, those who are fools and those who are helpless, each one of those different groups of people is able to come to God and to cry out to him in the midst of their distress, and he is able to deliver them from their circumstances. And all of those situations combine to be able to show and to display the transformative power of the Lord, which is our fifth point this morning. The transformative power of the Lord. When I first came and I first studied this, this uh, chapter, I remember coming to the end of it and realizing, man, I don't really know what to do with anything past verse 32. There was these four different groups of people, and I was like, what's going on here? It's talking about uh, rivers turning into wasteland and wasteland turning into rivers, and I wasn't sure. But as I started to be able to read through it, verse 33 and 34 came to life. He, he turns rivers into a desert and springs of water into thirsty ground and a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. I was looking at that. It was very clear that he's looking at judgment. He's able to be able to turn something prosperous into something that is empty and barren, but also he is able to do the opposite. Verse 35, he turns the desert into pools of water and parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. You see that God is able to both destroy and to be able to build up. He has the transformative power, not just to be able to restore, but also to destroy. And yet for each one of these incapable and broken groups of people, he decides not to be able to deal with them in destruction, but he decides to be able to deliver them from their distress. And the same is true for you and I. We might not be people who are Israelites or in a situation where we're in a time period similar to the exile, but I would probably bet money that at some point all of us have felt like at least one group of people in this section, in this passage. And in the midst of those situations, in the midst when we are like wanderers and we're aimless or we're like people in different situations, who do we cry out to and what do we do? How do we respond when circumstances are challenging? And the question arises, is God still able to transform people? Is God just the God of the Old Testament and times when the church was in its inception, or is God still able to transform us? God is still able to transform us here and now in our present circumstances. We're able to see that as we seek God and as we draw near to him, we start to see changes in our lives. And one of my favorite examples is the Apostle Paul. When we look at ourselves and you might be in a situation, you might say, you know what, I don't know if God's going to be able to still love me and care about me. 
in the midst of those situations, we, we might doubt that. The man who was chosen to be the apostle to the Gentiles was a man who was a persecutor of the church and was killing people. And God looked at him and said, you know what, I'm going to redeem his life from being a rebel and a persecutor into somebody who is an advocate and an apostle for me. And he did a radical transformation in his life. And if you look at people in this church, God has done a transformative work in many of our lives. Some more extreme than others, but for all of us who are walking with God, God has transformed our lives. And I grew up in the church, and I was a Christian when I was a young kid, but as I've walked with God, I've been more and more satisfied in God. And the more I've done that, the more I've seen my life transform better and better for his glory. And the same is true for all of us. As we seek out after God, as we cry out to him, as we pray to him and we cry out to him in the midst of our stress, as we no longer try to be able to work according to our own skill and offer up things into his hands, we start to see transformation in our lives. And he sends out his word and heals us. And the best illustration of that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the word made flesh who came. And similar to those who were in the Jews who were illustrated as those who were in the dungeons with the shackles on their hands, we too can have deliverance from all of our sins. Not just for all of eternity, but both here and now. When we come to Christ and we truly come to him and have our lives transformed, there's a change that happens. And we start to see things change slowly over time and he sanctifies us, he spiritually cleanses us, he washes us with the word, and he makes us more and more like his son Jesus as we look to follow after him. So as we look to be able to wrap things up this morning, I have a couple of questions for us. Are we trying to deliver ourselves, or are we seeking God to be able to deliver us? Are we wandering aimlessly in life without direction or satisfaction, or are we seeking the one who will cause us to look no more and to be truly satisfied? Are we trying to burst our own bonds apart of sin and iniquity and affliction, or are we trying to be able to turn to the one who has the power to be able to free us from all things? And are we living life according to the wisdom of God or the foolishness of man? And in the midst of times when we are helpless, are we running to God in the problems that we can't overcome? Or are we trying to be able to overcome it by our own skills? And for any of us in any circumstance or any situation, there is hope because God is able to transform anyone. And that's what the psalm is about, the testimony of the Lord's loving redemption because of his compassion for his people. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact, Lord, that as we study your word and as we draw closer to it, Lord, you heal us and you're able to deliver us from our destruction. God, I pray that you would bless this church, Lord, and that we wouldn't legalistically try to be able to read your word, Lord, just to be able to complete things, but that as we come to your word, Lord, that as we come to it, whether we want to or not, that you would slowly give us hearts for your word, that you would make us a church that is hungry for your word and hungry to be able to learn more about it, and that as we draw near to your word, Lord, you would heal us, Lord Jesus, and that you would refine us, that you would make us more and more like your son, Jesus, and that you would allow us to not be aimless in our direction, or without course in life, but to be given direction to follow Jesus and truly, truly satisfied in you. We pray all these things in the name of your Holy Son. Amen.